Hey everybody, this week we are in Asheville, North Carolina at the Mother Earth News Fair event. It is a great time, we really enjoy our time there, but we don't have time to do a new podcast today. However, we do have some new content for you. An interview done by our good friend Todd Sepulveda of his Prepper website podcast, awesome website, PrepperWebsite.com, has all the information that you need to keep safe in times of trouble and be prepared for just about any disaster. Todd interviewed me and I hope that there's a lot of good information for you here. Here we are with Todd Sepulveda and me interviewed last month for his podcast. Well, Dr. Bones, thanks so much for joining me on this interview. Uh, I really appreciate it. A lot of people, a lot of listeners know that I read your articles all the time on the podcast. I struggle with all the medical terms. I, I <laughs> suffer through it. Everyone is, is uh, very gracious on that. But uh, I love that you are here and that I'm, I'm going to get to talk to you face-to-face. And so uh, before we get started, I want to ask you this question. Are you a legit doctor? I am an actively licensed medical doctor. I'm a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. I'm a life fellow of the American College of OBGYN. I entered medical school in 1976. Oh, ow, that's painful. And to actively licensed when I graduated in 1980. I've, gosh, delivered thousands of babies, done thousands of surgeries. And even though I'm retired from the active practice of medicine, the laying on of hands, I still absolutely make sure I maintain my license actively in our home state of Florida. That's great. Okay, so just for the sake of the interview, um, Nurse Amy, is that just, you know, is that something that she just, is she she legit too? I mean, because, you know, we, you can be anybody that you want to be on the internet. And I read your articles all the time. I just want people to, to know. I mean, I know, right? I know the truth. I, I want you to share that as well. I want people to hear it from your own voice. I have to tell you that Amy has as many initials after her name as, as I do. I'm Joseph Alton, MD, F-A-C-O-G, F-A-C-S. She's Amy Alton, A-R-N-P, C-N-N. That means that she's an advanced registered nurse practitioner, that she's a certified nurse midwife, and that means also that she has kept her certification her license is active as well. So we really feel that it's important for uh, credibility purposes to maintain an active license. I don't have to, but I just think it's an important thing to have. That's great because when we're when we're talking about what we're going to talk about today, it's great to be able to hear it from a professional because I know there's a lot of articles written on it and uh, on this topic, but hearing it from someone who is a professional makes it so much better. So let's go ahead and get into it because I really wanted to talk about about medicine and stockpiling medicine where that you know why preppers would want to do that and the different types. So starting out, you know, why should a prepper want to store medicine? Same reason that the average citizen would want health insurance. I mean, they don't want to get sick, but they want access to treatment. For the prepper, the same reason that they would want to store food, water, a means of defense. Preparedness folk, we have to have an awareness of the issues that would accompany a really major disaster. Issues with water, food, shelter, maybe even air. At my ballpark, medical issues. You'd think that everybody would have this kind of awareness, but the truth of the matter is it's limited to maybe 3 or 4% of the population. It's one of the saddest things. And one thing that I have been spent my entire post-practice career doing is trying to get people to be more prepared in the face 
of the Zan. That's my mission, actually, to put a medically prepared person, at least one of them, in every family. That's a problem because the average citizen just doesn't think about things like how to purify water, how to cook food thoroughly enough if you didn't have, of course, modern conveniences, how to remain warm enough or cool enough in an off-grid setting. Nobody thinks about this type of thing. And they certainly aren't concerned enough, if they're not going to think about that, to prepare for things like epidemics of infectious disease, wound infections that would occur as a result of doing activities to which they're just not accustomed. Activities of daily survival. I mean, things that would be a challenge for every family in the face of a calamity. I don't know about you, but I probably would injure myself if I had to chop wood for fuel on a daily basis. These are things that people should think about. I mean, maybe the most common preventable cause of death in survival settings would be things that you could have easily prevented or treated. Things like cholera from bad water, uh, dysentery from contaminated food, things that wound infections, things that would kill tons of people, many more people than a gunfight at the OK Corral. Hopefully you're not going to have those on a daily basis, but you will have concerns about bad food, bad water on a daily basis. Everybody that's interested in disaster preparedness should be interested in medical preparedness. They should develop the knowledge, the skills, the training to get the supplies that are necessary to save lives in times of trouble, and that includes medicine. Completely. When I think about preparedness, when I first got into preparedness, I looked at all the different websites, and there was a couple of different ones that hit right off the bat. Yours, I think, newmanbloom.net, was like the third one that I wound up hitting. And the reason being is I know that it's pretty easy to figure out how to do fire and build a fire and cook and and all those different things about preparedness. But um, I tend to think short-term and also long-term as well. And long-term, you know, being that, hey, there's not going to be modern medicine and stuff like that. So I feel that it is very important to be able to have more medical knowledge. And that's why that's why I love what you do. And I've tr- always tried to promote what you guys are, are doing. Really, I mean, it's a privilege. I can't tell you how blessed we've been to have so many people that have supported our mission and have picked up the flag and taken the role of medic for their family. Yeah, well, we have spent time together, and those that are listening in, in, uh, to, the, to the podcast and watching the interview, you two are the two of the nicest people that I, I know, and so I, I love what you guys are doing. So Ditto. moving forward with medicine, talking about right. it, how should preppers gauge how much to store? You know, we talk about storing so much water, so much food, but when it comes to medicine, they're coming in little pill bottles and you know, first aid supplies and all that kind of stuff. I mean, and I know the focus is a little bit more on on medicine here. So how much should we really store? I'll tell you what, I wrote an article about that because it is, since we put out our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, it is one of the questions that I've gotten the most in emails, on Facebook, and in all our social media. And so I wrote an article on this as it pertains to antibiotics, but we can talk about it as in, in general with regards to any medicine. I mean, in my article, I could have said, well, you should have uh, 100 penicillin pills or 20 amoxicillin pills or, or made other guesses. But the truth is, the truth is, is that there are a lot of factors that go into determining the amount of medical supplies that you're going to need and, and medicine that you're going to need. And so let's go over just a few of these. This is, I, bear with me on here on this. First, what happened? What disaster took away modern medicine and made you the medic? 
I mean, in terms of the types and quantities of medicines you're going to need, the aftermath of a storm, very different from, say, an epidemic, right? I mean, that's not to say that a non-disease event couldn't cause an epidemic. In Haiti, an earthquake a few years ago caused so much damage to the infrastructure that a cholera epidemic ensued. So the question is, if you're, are you worried just about maybe the occasional wound infection? If you are, then the amount of, let's say, antibiotic medicine you would need would be much less than if you were more concerned about every member of your family becoming sick as a result of an outbreak of the plague. So that's a big, big difference in terms of the amount of medicine that you need. Now, next, how long would it take for modern medicine to make a comeback? Now, some of these things are pretty much permanent societal destabilization, but that's not always going to be the case. And, and in most cases, if you have a disaster, the truth is maybe it's a storm, a hurricane, or a tornado that knocks out the power for a week or so. But the likelihood is that you're probably not going to need a huge supply of medications other than to deal with injuries and things that occur as a result of, of the short-term disaster. And, of course, if you have water-free purification tablets, then maybe you don't have to worry too much about bad water. But if the disaster is an EMP from a nuclear detonation 200 miles in the atmosphere, you might be off the grid for decades. And so your amount of medicine you need is going to be a lot more. Now, another factor to consider, how many people you're responsible for. That is a big one. It's got to be more than you think. Because there are going to be people that are going to show up at your doorstep. Sure, you know, everybody says how, oh, I'm turning them away or I'm going to shoot them and eat them, you know, for dinner. Uh, but the truth is you're not going to refuse your eight-year-old niece that shows up at your doorstep. There are a lot of people that you just can't refuse. And unless you're a jack-of-all-trades, you're going to need people that have other skills. Skills that are going to help you increase your chance of survival. If I show up on your doorstep, are you going to turn me away? Yeah, knowing that I'm knowing that I'm a doctor and I have these medical skills or or Amy, for example, you probably aren't. But since we travel a lot and we speak a lot of different places and we do classes in a lot of different places, well, we're traveling, but we don't have all of our preps with us. We don't carry every single prep with us. And so therefore, we wouldn't have that much to give you other than our skills. But yet those skills may be very valuable to you. You have to count on more medicine than the people that you're ordinarily thinking you'd be med medically responsible for. And, of course, you, it depends who you're taking care of. Are, are everybody in your family a young person? Are, are they all totally robust and healthy? Your survival group is loaded with young kids or elderly folks or somebody who has chronic illness. you got to be storing the right medicines and you got to be storing them in larger quantities. You gotta have the materials that are going to deal with the terrain too. If the terrain's steep and rugged, you're gonna expect a lot more injuries and you're gonna have to have the medicines to deal with that. And one last I, I bear with me, one last factor, how good is the medic? How good is the medic? The medic has to have the ability to recognize things like bacterial versus a viral infection. This is something we've written about and on our website and, of, and of course, in our new book. A lot of people see any kind of infection and they throw antibiotics at it. Matter of fact, it that's not even not. I'm not talking about survival scenarios necessarily. I'm talking about normal times. One in three people that go to their doctor with a respiratory infection actually have a bacterial infection. Only one in three. The majority have a viral infection. Yet most of them leave their doctor's office with a prescription for an antibiotic, something that would do absolutely nothing for them. If you're the kind of medic that would throw antibiotics at everybody who has an infection, well, you're going to go through your antibiotics pretty quickly. You cannot use them like candy. One more sign of a good medic, 
assuring proper sanitation and hygiene. You're not just there to deal with the boo-boos. You are there, and injuries, you are there to do preventive medicine to save you a lot of headaches and maybe some heartache if you can do that. If you, if you allow, let's say, the latrine for the group to be built 10 feet from the local water source, well, you know, you're going to have contamination. You're going to have disease that's going to follow that. Uh, if you don't supervise the purification of water and uh, make sure that food is prepared properly, you're going to have to deal with a lot of uh, intestinal issues. So I have to say there's no single answer and that exists as to how many medicines that you should have. I wish I could, I wish I, I could always throw out a number, but the only thing I can say, it's probably more than what you have right now. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Definitely. Well, I, it, it boils down to one of those things where you have to put a little bit of work into it, a little bit of thought, a little bit of planning. Um, you know, I think sometimes people want, just give me the number and I want to go get that from the store and put it in my closet and I'll be good. But the truth is there's a little bit more to it than that when it comes to preparedness planning for, for everything, food, water, but it, even medicine. And you brought up a lot of great points on that. So, uh, yeah, that's something that we need to, to work with and struggle with and to really think this through. So before we talk about medicine to stockpile, if we could only have one medicine, I, I know it's not the end-all, be-all, but if there was only one that we could stockpile, what, what would you say? What would that be? If there was one product that would prevent the most disease, I would actually say that would be water purification tablets or some method of purifying water. I mean, seeing how many people die from bad water in, in scenarios, well, I mean, let's look back at our own history. Civil War soldiers, how many died from disease caused by bad water and contaminated food compared to those who died from bullets or shrapnel? Probably a two-to-one disease versus uh, battlefield injuries. But that's not technically medicine. We're not going to call that medicine. I, I, I would have to say antibiotics. And that this is one thing that people don't really pay too much attention to trying to accumulate that I think would make the most sense for people. There are some natural products that have antibacterial effects. I support the use of honey, for example, as an antibacterial agent. Garlic has antibacterial properties. But in my opinion, don't probably don't reach the effect that pharmaceutical antibiotics have. And so you should have a supply of those. You know, what would cause the greatest number of illnesses and avoidable deaths, avoidable deaths in a long-term disaster scenario? If an earthquake occurs and a fissure opens up and you happen to be standing where the fissure is opening up, you're probably going to go to the earth's core and that's it for you. But infection, you can nip that in the bud. And so there's a lot of stuff that you can do. And the we have very little issues with infectious disease outbreaks now, but in the past, especially in the American South, we had things like yellow fever, we had malaria, things that you don't consider to be a disease in America. Well, once very common, there were yellow fever epidemics all over the place in New Orleans, if you've been to New Orleans, and Florida, and I just walk any old cemetery and read the inscriptions. You're going to see all sorts of people, children, women, Young men who died well before their time. I mean, most of these people were, were they weren't run over by a car. They didn't die in a plane crash, and they weren't even killed in battle. They had some infection that killed them as an infant or a toddler. They had maybe some infection after having a baby if they were a woman. And with the advent of antibiotics, you see much fewer gravestones that have little lambs and hearts and angels on them. 
can we say the same thing if we were thrown off the grid? I mean, we have no chance of accessing the miracle of modern medicine. We'd start using, losing these people again, mm -hmm. unless you have antibiotics. That's my thing. I'm talking about that a lot lately because, of course, I'm making shameless plugs for my new book. But it is something that would make a lot of sense. And I have been writing about it for about 10 years. So, Great. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about antibiotics here in a, in a little bit. Um, so something that's a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe where we can get antibiotics and, and things like that. Before we move there, what about over-the-counter medicines that preppers can easily stockpile? Can you give us maybe seven to 10, you know, whatever you think, different uh, over-the-counter medicines that we could go right now that we can purchase and, uh, and what, you know, why we would want those specific ones? That's an awesome question. I'll tell you, over-the-counter medicines, deal with a wide variety of problems. And the great thing about them is that, as you say, they're widely available, easy to accumulate in quantity. And that is ideal, uh, just basically what the survival medic, exactly what they need. They need something like that, something that they can get in the quantity that would make a difference in a long-term situation. So you have to realize that manufacturing pharmaceuticals is different. These are going to be nearly impossible to produce after a collapse. So even aspirin, which was the oldest manufactured drug, I think 1884 or 1886 was when it was first manufactured, that's not going to be available, at least in a form that you would recognize. So let's talk about some of the ones that you would want me to recommend. And one, number one, ibuprofen. Ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, or some of the brand names that good pain reliever, anti-inflammatory, fever reducer. It's useful for a lot of different problems, and it makes it useful to stockpile for arthritis, uh, for injuries, traumatic injuries, strains, sprains. It can help reduce inflammation due to a lot of different causes that are not trauma-related. Uh, ibuprofen is also useful, reducing fevers, of course, from infections. The, the downside is that it can cause stomach upset, but it does that only in some people. Tylenol would be an additional one. Ty another popular pain reliever and fever reducer uh, can be used for all the problems that you take ibuprofen for just about with the added benefit of not causing stomach irritation or thinning the blood, which is something that uh, ibuprofen can also do. But it does not have the anti-inflammatory effect that ibuprofen does. It's excellent for the treatment of pain and fevers in children, especially in its lower doses. Aspirin, we'll go down the pain relievers. If you have ibuprofen and acetaminophen, Tylenol, that is, in your medical storage, why would you consider aspirin? That seems like a sort of redundancy. Well, it's a good anti-inflammatory. It's a fever reducer. It's a pain reliever. But it has blood thinning properties as well. So you might have some people that are on Coumadin or some other kind of blood thinning medicine, but that run out of it as a result of it not being manufactured anymore for some disaster. And in that circumstance, you're going to want to have something that they could use instead that would have some blood thinning capacity and aspirin would be good for that. Also, it would be good to help people prevent heart attacks. If you take uh, baby aspirin on a, on a daily basis, it's known to decrease your chances of a heart attack. If you're having a heart attack, a chewing a full adult dose of aspirin actually may help. Loperamide's brand name is Imodium, very useful, high likelihood of food and water contamination issues. I mentioned that a million times today. So you got to have that medicine essential as an anti-diarrheal medicine because if you can slow down the intestinal motility, you're going to lose less water from the body and remain hydrated longer. These 
people who got these uh, in, in the Civil War, they didn't die just because there was a bacteria in their body from bad water. They died because it caused so much water loss from diarrhea that they became dehydrated and without, of course, the availability of intravenous rehydration, well, they died simply because they got too dehydrated. Can I inter interrupt you there? I know emodium comes in many different forms. There's the liquid form and there's the capsule form. So which form would be the best to stockpile? I want you to use the two, mi two milligram capsule, capsule form or, or tablet form. would make a lot more sense because it will last a lot longer. Medicines that are in liquid form or in general don't last as long. They lose their potency relatively quickly. I've talked a lot about expiration dates and when a medicine is in a pill or a capsule form, it tends to stand the test of time if stored properly. Dry, cool, dark places better than uh, most liquid medicines. So for that reason, if you have the opportunity to choose between a capsule or, or a pill or a liquid, I would choose the pillar capsule every time. Perfect. So talking about diarrhea, you wanna, you're going to have nausea and vomiting too. That also causes people to become dehydrated, and you may lose people from, from that if you can't rehydrate them intravenously. You want to have something like meclizine. That's also known as Dramamine or Antivert. comes in a couple of different doses, uh, I think 25, 50, I think it was 12.5. Uh, it's a medication that helps prevent nausea and vomiting. It helps deal with it. used used to prevent motion sickness, dizziness, acts as a sedative as well. So Maybe a very helpful medicine to have around. Triple antibiotic ointment. I'll go back to infections. And, and if you're fending for yourself, you're going to be, as I said, chopping wood, doing all sorts of weird tasks that you don't do on a daily basis right now. You're going to injure yourself. And any injury that breaks the skin puts you in danger of infection. Almost everything's going to be a dirty wound. And it could lead to a life-threatening situation. So if you have triple antibiotic ointment applied to the site of the injury, it could help prevent this from happening. And is certainly good as a preventative after, let's say, closing a wound or after washing a wound, it's a good thing to maybe put uh, on top of that in an effort to decrease infection. Respiratory infections, these are going to be very common as well, of course, they're very common now and they're going to be common then. So you're going to want things that will help you with that. So decongestant like um, phenylephrine, I think, might be a very useful item to have. You're going to have a lot of people that will, could use that. Benadryl, diphenhydramine, that is very useful. Uh, that's an antihistamine that helps alleviate the itching, rashes, and, and helps nasal congestion too, and all sorts of other symptoms of allergic reactions. It also helps sleep. It's a great sleep aid at the 50 milligram dose. So use 25 milligrams if you're dealing with some itching or rash issues, and use 50 milligrams if you want to help people sleep. Hydrocortisone cream, very useful, 1% used for all sorts of different skin conditions, so uh, itching, flaking, thickening of the skin, redness. Mild steroid reduces inflammation, so very helpful. Antacids, very useful, calms heartburn and queasiness, stomach upset. Calcium carbonate will last forever, essentially. It's Tums or Rolades, you know, the chewables, they will last for a very long time. Antifungal agents, you're, of course, there are bacterial infections. There are also fungal infections as well. So there are different medicines that take care of those than take care of bacterial infections. So athlete's feet, ringworm, jock itch, vaginal infections, things like that. Uh, you want uh, clotrimazole, lotrimin. 
uh, myconazole cream, monostat. These are useful things to have. And I think also, well, I'll do one more, multivitamins. Uh, that sounds a little strange. It's not really uh, considered a medicine, but and, you know, if there was a true collapse, the unavailability of really a good, healthy diet for so many people is going to cause problems with deficiencies, deficiencies that we don't see in the United, in the United States, certainly, things like scurvy, which is a vitamin C deficiency, a beriberi, a lot of crazy deficiencies occur when you don't have a diet that has these vitamins. So maybe having multivitamins might be a good thing. I wouldn't take them on a daily basis. They're not necessary to take on a daily basis. Maybe on a weekly basis, if you were in a situation where you knew your people weren't getting the kind of diet that they would, that would ordinarily keep them healthy. Sounds good. You gave us a lot of different medicines there to look at. You asked for 10. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, but that's good because things that probably you know, there's things that we that we purchase at the drugstore or whatever at the big box store, and and uh, you know we have in our medicine cabinet. But a lot of the times, we always know that we can go and get those things. But we're not always thinking about, like for instance, the anti-diarrheal. We're not looking at some of those other. You know, it's just like it's so quick to run and go get those. But you know, if you're in a in a SHTF situation, you wouldn't be able to to do that, and so. Having the idea to, hey, you know what, I need to have some of these things already in place because they would make a big, big difference, kind of like what you mentioned there. You're absolutely correct. And these are medicines that could last a very long time if you, if you store them right. Now, a lot of, I just wanted to say that the medicine cabinet in your bathroom is probably not the best place to store them because people, of course, take their showers and their baths there. And most people like hot water and there's humidity that's more humidity in those rooms, in your bathrooms, than probably the rest of your house. So maybe that's not the best place to have your survival medicine stores. That's a good point. Okay, so let me ask you this this question here. You, you brought up the idea of expiration dates. Every single one of those drugs, if you were to go get over-the-counter medicine, if you go get them, you 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 know you look at the the bottle, you look at the package. It's going to tell you you have a year, maybe a little bit longer, depending on when you buy it. And then, so I mean, how long do they really? last because you brought that up and of course i've been in preparedness for a while so i know the answer but it's still really hard for people to look at a package and that expiration date and say you know what I, i need to throw this away i mean i've heard all my life i need to throw these away they're not any good anymore can you talk to us a little bit about that absolutely so let's talk about that what is an expiration date before 1979 you didn't have to have them on medicines at all most of them didn't have expiration dates. But the government decided that that was going to be the case. And so pharmaceutical companies had to come up with a day that would be the last day that they would guarantee 100% potency of the product. And that is all that an expiration date means. That means that if you take that medicine the week or month after, you're not going to grow a horn in the middle of your forehead or have parts of your body fall off. Actually, and it's likely that the drug will be 100% potent for years after the expiration date. Now, how can I say such a thing? Some old country doctor just sitting here rocking in his old rocking chair saying something so outside the conventional medical wisdom. Well, it's pretty simple. The government has warehouses 
where they have drug stores that are used in case of a peacetime disaster of some sort and the need to take care of people. Part of our national emergency medical response to have this kind of stuff. Now, in the old days, when these warehouses full of these drugs, they found lots that reached their expiration date, they would get the forklift out and out would go tens of millions of dollars worth of doses of different medicines and go right into the trash. Even the Department of Defense finally figured out that this was sort of a wasteful policy, and so they instituted a study, and the study was known as the Shelf Life Extension Program. And in the Shelf Life Extension Program, they tested 122 of the most common medicines that were used in disaster responses. They found that the grand majority of the drugs that were in pillar capsule form, pillar capsule form, if they were stored properly, were 100% potent for 2 to 12 years beyond their expiration dates. And this is not something that is just like some kind of rumor. This is a study that was published in the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences in uh, July of, I think, 2006. Your medicines are good for a good long period of time. There was an additional report in which in San Diego, they found a pharmacy that had blocked off a wall that used to be where they kept drugs. The drugs they found there were 28 to 40 years past their expiration date. And they tested them for the active ingredients. And 14 of the 16 active ingredients were at 100% potency. As a matter of fact, some were at 110% potency because the fillers in some of the medicines had degraded, but not the active ingredients. So it's not that I'm saying that they'll be good for 28 to 40 years, but definitely for, for a number of years after their expiration dates, you can count on most of your medicines in pillar capsule form to be 100% potent. And very few of them, the grand majority of them, are, are safe to use. There's been talk about uh, tetracycline being an issue. In the 1960s, there were a lot, in the 1970s, there were reports of people with kidney disease uh, if they took tetracycline-type drugs one year after uh, the expiration date or more. And, and, and indeed, that did occur, but they did change the formulation since then, and they actually don't seem to have reports of that anymore. Now, that doesn't mean it, that you should add tetracycline necessarily. I think doxycycline, another member of the tetracycline family, is a much better choice and is, I think, very, uh, very useful for people to have and, and can be used as an expired drug. And the reason why I can say that is because the United States um, FDA actually issued an emergency use authorization for doxycycline when there was a shortage after a major military purchase. Civilians were having trouble getting it. And so they, uh, the government said you can use your doxycycline for five years or more after its expiration date. They did the same thing with Tamiflu after the swine flu uh, epidemic in 2009. I, I bet a lot of people that uh, just heard that information are just loving it, probably also kicking themselves if they've thrown away a lot of medicine, uh, you know, in, in the past. But uh, that's really great for preppers to know that they can store some medicine, and it's going to be good for, for a long time. Now, in normal now, times, I will say, in normal times where you can call your doctor and get some fresh medicine, get fresh medicine. But think twice before you throw away the, the older medicine. It might be useful uh, to have in your medical storage. Good point. Good point. All right, so let's say we are in a true survival situation. 
we are whatever happens, right? The balloon goes up, the hammer drops, whatever. And we have used up all of our medicine and we have done all of that. There's no, you know, there's no government, there's no medical supplies, there's no maybe the walking dead, whatever, right? right. And so, you know, we have family members that we love, that we care about, and we want to make sure that they are healthy and we can take care of them. What can a prepper do now to maybe see, you know, see that situation and be able to navigate that situation in the future if that was a scenario that happened? I'm really glad you mentioned this because I think that few people in the preparedness community really understand what it means to be in a true long-term survival off-grid setting. No matter how many medicines that you actually are managing to accumulate, the likelihood is that eventually they're all going to be expended. They're all going to run out. And so in addition to getting more medicine maybe than you currently have, everybody that is interested in preparedness should follow their ancestors' example and learn about plants in their area that might have medicinal benefits. You know, before there there was a power grid, before there were pharmacies, even apothecaries, there were medicinal gardens with herbs that were used to treat all sorts of ailments. Now, I'm a master gardener for the state of Florida. I have gone through that program, but I don't claim to be an herbalist, but I do have a lot of herbs growing in my garden. I have comfrey, I have cardamom, cinnamon, I have a cinnamon tree, uh, bay tree, ginger. I have all sorts, all sorts of different herbs. And you know what? It doesn't take a green thumb to grow most of these. Most of them actually grow like weeds, honestly. Uh, it's just a matter of figuring out the right place for the right plant. That's a master gardener creed. And you get plants that are meant to thrive in your grow zone. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of strains that are being grown right now and developed right now that are more, let's say, heat resistant or cold resistant than the original versions. So it's important to have your own medicinal garden. As a matter of fact, in the Survival Medicine Handbook, our our main uh, book, we talk about how to grow a medicinal garden and, and the importance of it. Just like you would want to maybe grow vegetables and have vegetable gardening, you know, you really want to have an herb garden as well that would have some medicinal benefits. I'll bet there are plants in your own backyard right now that have some type of use in survival settings. Great, great points. Thank you so much for saying that because, I, you know, that's something that I think everybody should pay attention to. And I do share your your, your medical handbook does have a lot of great information, not only you know, what you need to know if modern medicine isn't available, but you guys talk about the, you know, the, the herbal garden, medicinal garden, like you're talking about, talk about essential oils and all that good stuff. I really truly believe, I know that, you know, those that listen to the podcast know that I've always said that that should be the number one book that any prepper should have is your survival medicine handbook. Thank you. Definitely. I'm honored. Thank you. Definitely. But the, you just recently came out with another book, and you've kind of referenced it, the antibiotic book. And so if we can go kind of move into that, are you good with that? Absolutely. Let's go. All right. So what do antibiotics do? And uh, just for those of us who maybe just need to be clear on that, what do antibiotics do, and why should preppers want to stockpile antibiotics? Well, antibiotics are powerful medicines. Uh, they fight certain infections and can even stop 
epidemics when they're used properly. So you could see that they are pretty important to have in situations where you are not having full access to modern medicine. So each of these medicines is a little bit different. They, they eliminate certain bacterial populations in various ways, ranging from uh, outright destruction of the cell walls of the bacteria to maybe inhibiting the germ's ability to repair itself or maybe to, even to reproduce. So the question is, why should preppers want to stockpile these medications? And, and it's for the same reason, as I mentioned before, that a prepper wants to stockpile food, water, and a means of defense. If you envision a long-term disaster as a series of gunfights and hostile encounters, you're probably going to be, I was going to say disappointed, actually you're probably pleasantly surprised <laughs> that that probably is, is not going to happen. But you're going to be daily at risk for infection from bad water, bad food that can cause infection. So, and, and indeed, the majority of the casualties of a long-term event will be from the inability to rehydrate people that wind up having infections, especially intestinal infections that cause diarrhea and cause major, major dehydration. So that is what I think is going to happen. I think that the majority of your deaths, your avoidable deaths, are going to be caused by that. In any major catastrophe, there's just going to be a much larger incidence of infections rather than injuries. But the truth is, is that the injuries will more often lead to infection. Any break in the skin, remember your skin is your armor. Any break in your skin leaves your body prone to infection. And within a short period of time, you'll start seeing a wound become red. It'll swell. And, you know, that redness spreads. And once it gets into your circulation, you're in big trouble. It could be a life-threatening thing. I don't know if anybody saw the uh, History Channel presentation um, after Armageddon. In it, a paramedic who was the head of, the, of a household is in some kind of, I forget what the actual disaster was, but he's off the grid now and he's got to go and survive somehow with his family. And so he he finds a community that's willing to take him in because of his medical skills, but he also has to do other activities as well, right? He has to do his other duties as well, and so he's in the garden, and he winds up cutting himself. He washes the area, but the area starts getting red and swollen. He goes to the medical stores and finds there's no antibiotic. So he watches his infection spread over the next few weeks, and he, and he dies from it. Absolutely avoidable, unnecessary death. And you lose a valuable member of the community, somebody with medical skills, simply because of something that could have been nipped in the bud if there were an antibiotics, a terrible thing. I mean, you might not be able to cure somebody with a gunshot wound to the head, but you can nip that infected cut on somebody's hand right in the bud before it enters their circulation and kills them. After Armageddon is one of those uh, videos that I talk about <clears throat> talk about a lot. My uh, That's actually the one that got my wife uh, onto preparedness. We watched it one day. And so, yeah, exactly what you were talking about. It was a pandemic that kind of started the whole, you know, thing, uh, moving, moving downward. Here's the thing. You're talking about antibiotics. Everybody knows that an antibiotic is uh, a prescription medication. So when we're talking about stockpiling, how can a prepper stockpile medication like that? I mean, are we going to our doctor and lying about what we have so that we can stockpile medication? or antibiotics. I mean, how do we how do we go about doing that? Well, the average citizen would indeed consider the accumulation of antibiotics 
to be sort of problematic. Of course, you can accumulate over-the-counter drugs pretty easily, and but antibiotics, that's another matter altogether. Unless you really have an infection, you're not going to be able to get antibiotics from your doctor. And actually, that's probably good because there's an epidemic of antibiotic resistance in this country right now. And, and that's, by the way, most not from the overuse by physicians, although that certainly happens, but mostly because 80% of the antibiotics in this country are used on food-producing livestock. As a result, what we're having is all sorts of incidences of antibiotic resistance and bacteria that are developing res uh, resistance, salmonella, E. coli, all sorts of things that you'll read it in papers that there are all sorts of outbreaks of, of these kinds of things. I mean, you can go to your doctor, but even if you have, let's say you have the most sympathetic physician in the world, you can ask him for antibiotics and he gives you a prescription for antibiotics. But are, are, can you ask him for 100 antibiotic pills? Probably not. So you've got to have antibiotics in good quantities in your medical kit if you're going to save some of your loved ones when the inevitable infections occur. And so I believe there's a viable option, and that option is aquarium and avian antibiotics. And here's another one. How can I possibly make such a statement, just like expiration dates? What a crazy old man this guy is. But indeed, just like I wrote that article years ago about expiration dates, I wrote an article years ago, actually it was I think my first article that was published by Survival Blog back many years ago about fish and avian antibiotics. An unusual combination in that I'm both a physician and I also have raised tropical fish. I was president of an international aquarium society. When I decided to become more self-sufficient, we raised tilapia in ponds. We also have a pet parrot that is now over about 30 years old. We call him T.D. Bird. And TD stands for that darn, let's say, bird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do, you do it all, man. You've got fish, you're a doctor, you got uh, the master gardener thing going on. I so, mean, everybody, everybody wants you in their survival group. What I am trying to do is I'm trying to put a cadre of people just like me in every survival group. And so I hope one day that I can progress in that. I hope I have made some progress in that way. But, well, anyhow, you can say that we know our way of, around medicine, birds, and fish, right? So after decades of using aquatic medicines for fish and avian medicines for birds whenever we needed, we decided to evaluate these drugs, especially the antibiotic drugs, for their potential use in austere settings. Veterinary medicines actually seemed to be pretty good candidates. I mean, the ones we were investigating were widely available uh, in different varieties. They didn't require a medical license to obtain them. Sure enough, having a supply of these would probably save a lot of lives. But could any of these drugs be safe to take? So you got to look at the ingredients on the bottle. A simple thing to do that doesn't take a doctor to do. One of the antibiotics that we happen to have right there for our fish, and it was called Fishmox, probably the most well-known fish antibiotic among preppers nowadays. But what we did originally is we took a look at the bottle. Simple as that. In the back of the bottle, the ingredients. There's one amoxicillin 500 milligrams. So that's pretty interesting to me because, you know, 500 milligrams is the amount of amoxicillin I would give you, Todd, if you had an infection. So I thought that was pretty interesting. There were no additional chemicals in there or ingredients that would make your scale shinier, that would make your feathers brighter. So <laughs> I was pretty impressed that it came in exactly the dose that a human would take. I figured out, oh, well, let's see how many other doses it comes in. So we researched further, and we found that it only comes in human dosages. Either the 500 milligram dose, which is the adult version, uh, they call it Fishmox Forte, 
or the 200 milligram, 250 milligram dose, which is what they give in the amoxicillin elixir that they give children, that pink elixir that they give kids. I asked, now why would a guppy require the same amount of amoxicillin as a human? I mean, it was suggested to me by some skeptics that it's because you place it in the water. But at the time, 10 years ago or more, there were no specific instructions anywhere that told me how much to add for to the fish tank. Is one capsule the dose for a 200-gallon aquarium, or is it the dose for a fish bowl? That wasn't there. So my question became, is this medicine for fish identical to the amoxicillin that humans use? And so to determine this, we did, well, the acid test. I found a bottle of amoxicillin made by Deva Pharmaceuticals, who makes, to this day, human, human antibiotics. And I opened up the bottle of fish mox, and I opened up the bottle of human amoxicillin, the 500 milligram version. The human amoxicillin was a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. The fish mox was a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. We figured out that that probably means that they're identical. We found it hard to believe, but after discussing this with a number of professionals in the pharmaceutical field that uh, were also interested in preparedness, it actually confirmed our suspicions. It actually sort of surprised them, too, because obviously they were seeing just the human antibiotics, not the fish antibiotics. I'm the only person probably around that was using both the human versions on my patients and the fish version on my fish when they had fin rot or some other bacterial infection of fish. Eventually, we found 12 antibiotics or so that met the criteria. And what was that criteria? The veterinary drug had to have only one ingredient, the antibiotic itself. The drug, even though it was marketed for pets, must only be produced in dosage used for humans, human adults or children. The veterinary drug and human version must be identical to each other, physically identical to each other, down to the identification numbers and letters on the capsules. The medicine had to be available without a prescription so that people could get it, and it had to be available for purchase in bulk. And so, as you can imagine, very few antibiotic medications used in the veterinary field meet these criteria. Horse medicines are not going to be in the doses that humans use. Uh, So, for that reason, I did not include that as one that it was acceptable because it didn't meet my criteria. I really wanted that criteria to be strict because I knew that it was going to meet with skepticism and, and some criticism. And and we certainly got our share of that. But we wrote about that because we felt very strongly that this would save some lives in a setting where there was no access to modern medicine. And so uh, we wrote about that on the uh, first in the survival blog, then our own, then on on our own website, then in the survival medicine handbook, and then we expanded it to 322 pages on that one topic in our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Uh, we the subtitle is the Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. So we're telling you that it's what's available what it treats, bacterial infections. It will not treat in a viral infection. Antibiotics don't treat viruses. And when you should use it, austere settings. Who's it good for? The layman. Obviously, if you were a microbiologist or an infectious disease doctor, this is probably below your pay grade. But it's a pretty unique book. You're not going to find a lot of people that write books like this. Definitely. So what you're saying is that the antibiotics that you found were the same dosages as human dosages. Are they manufactured differently? Are they... No, as a matter of fact, they are manufactured in the same batches and they're redistributed. If you go to thomaslabs.com, you'll see the exact same medicine just as, as 
human amoxicillin. I just packaged in a bottle that has a fish on it. Uh, because of pressure from the government, I think they are actually having to say, you know, don't use this on humans and things like that. And indeed, in normal times, you should not use that on humans. You should only use antibiotics when they're absolutely necessary, period. But, you, you know, if you have access to modern medicine, medical care, you should use human medicines like everybody else. Seek modern and standard care whenever it is available, as we say on our podcast. I want to say that it would be hypocritical of me to suggest that a veterinary antibiotic can be used in humans without testimony. And here's my testimony. I have personally used probably four or so of these antibiotics, not all of them, on my own person without any ill effects Whenever I've used them, the results have been indistinguishable from using human antibiotics. And see, that's something you might expect since they are indeed the same medication, identical in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of people in the pharmaceutical field. You, you didn't grow gills or feathers? Like <laughs> well, I like the water, but I, I can only spend a certain amount of time under it. <laughs> Well, I, I'm glad. I mean, I know, like, like I said, I have read your articles um, for for Prepper website, and I've even read them on the podcast. And I still come across um, comments on websites and different things like that where people like, I would never use a fish antibiotic, and I'm just like, wait a minute, there is legitimate, you know, work that has been done on this. And so I think what you're doing is so valuable to the preparedness community. I don't think people realize how many lives, like you were saying earlier, avoidable deaths, right? There's gonna be those injuries that happen, but avoidable deaths because people heed this advice about antibiotics. And so I think it's a very important work out there for, for, for the preparedness community and anyone else that would listen. So. Going back to expiration dates, like we talked about before, are the expirations the, the same type here when we're talking about antibiotics? Or, you know, do they have a, a shorter uh, shelf life than over-the-counter medicines? Can you help us out with that? No, they all have their own, own expiration dates, but uh, pharmaceutical companies in general like those expiration dates to be somewhere between 12 and 24 months for just about anything. Now, other medical supplies, things like the hemostatic agents that like Celox or Quick Clot, they'll have longer expiration dates, five years or so, in, in some cases longer. Uh, they, they even bandages in some cases, Israeli battle dressings, I think have an expiration date of five to eight years, something like that. So, I mean, everything has expiration dates, and this is just the amount of time they're willing to guarantee, I guess, for a bandage that it's sterile, the blood clotting agents that they'll clot blood as as advertised, but they probably would last longer, and I, there haven't been any. I can tell you right now that I have a medical kit from World War II that I obtained, and the bandages look pretty good to me. <laughs> you know, they look like bandages. You know, they, have, they haven't disintegrated or anything. I guess they will one day, but uh, it'll be after I'm gone. That's for sure. But definitely the antibiotic medicines will, will last like over-the-counter medicines. Am I? Yes. I well, they were part, you know, a number of these antibiotics were actually part of the Shelf Life Extension Program study. Okay. So, yes. Perfect. Can you give us a couple of antibiotics that are good general? And I mean, is there such a thing, right? I'm not a professional you're the professional. Is there uh, an overall general antibiotic maybe that 
if preppers were looking to get some of these, purchase some of these, um, that they would say, okay, th this is maybe the first one I should get, maybe the second one. I don't know. There are a number of antibiotics that we write about, so many in our book that, honestly, few people would have the wherewithal to purchase large quantities of every single one of them. So in reality, you do have to make a decision as to what makes the most sense for you. Unfortunately, no one antibiotic cures all bacterial infections. Again, I just want to say again, no antibiotic cures viral infections at all. In any major catastrophe, you're going to have to fend for yourself. You're going to have a lot of infections to deal with. So therefore, what you need to do is you need to find the right antibiotics to make sense. I think the first one might be amoxicillin or something in the amoxicillin family. This family is called the beta-lactam, beta-lactam, L-A-C-T-A-M, drug family. It includes all the penicillins and includes uh, things like Keflex or Cephalexin. So having, I think, amoxicillin or cephalexin, uh, keflex or amoxil, uh, these are good options for, it's good for a number of wound infections, good for a number of respiratory infections. And these things would be pretty common in survival settings to have these kind of things. And so I think that that would be a, a good thing. And the reason why it's a those these are especially good is because they're okay to use in pregnant ladies. There are medications that can be given to children, although at lower doses, we tell you the doses that you should use in, in the book, of course. Uh, doxycycline, I think, is a good second choice. That's a member of, the, member of the tetracycline family. It helps take care of a lot of abdominal and diarrheal infections, but also some respiratory infections as well. Doxycycline is called bird biotic. Metronidazole, also, no, also known as fish zole, will deal with both bacteria and parasites. And that's especially useful for those people that are going to be living in the backcountry, heading to a retreat in the backcountry in times of trouble, where clear running water may still harbor, it may look pretty, but it may still harbor Giardia or other common organisms. So that might be a useful thing to have. After that, I would say clindamycin is really good. Sulfa drugs, azithromycin, uh, ZPAC, all of these come in different fish versions. Clindamycin is fish sin, C-I-N. Fish sulfa forte is the sulfa drug. And azithromycin, I think, is called bird zithro. These are good alternatives. Doxycycline and these other medicines are all acceptable in penicillin allergic patients. But if you've had a good experience with one or the other, I think that makes a little bit of sense. If you've taken clindamycin in the past and that worked well for, or your family was able to tolerate that particular medicine, didn't have a lot of bad side effects, that would be something that would go into my thinking in terms of picking an antibiotic that I would want. You might consider drugs like uh, erythromycin. That's another one that comes in fish version, fish mycin. If you have a mix of these, I would say Keflex or about that one's called Fishlex, by the way. Fishlex, Fishmox, Bird Biotic, Doxycycline, those two, and then one or two of the others that I've mentioned, you might be good for many different types of infections. Like I said, it doesn't cure all. No one medicine cures all, but you'll certainly be able to hit a lot of the types of infections that would occur in survival settings. That's all the time we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back with a new show next time. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That created stock with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something to your own life. Beat it 